Hello, and welcome to the Zetamar News podcast, taking you behind the headlines in Mozambique. I'm Tom Bowker, the editor of Zetamar News. This week, in a change from what has become the usual format, I'm going to be interviewing four of my colleagues from Cabo Ligado, the leading observatory or think tank on the conflict going on in northern Mozambique. Today, we'll hear from Sam Ratner, who leads the analyst team on the project, and he'll give us a general update on what's been happening the last couple of months in Cabo Delgado and in neighbouring Nyasa province. In the second part of the podcast, we'll be turning to an article published by Zitimar News on Friday afternoon for our subscribers about a new policy that's due to come into force in the European Union, which could have a seriously damaging effect on Mozambique's aluminium exports. Pamela Machado is the Zitimar reporter who wrote the story, and she'll be explaining what it's all about. But first, Cabo Ligado has just published its latest monthly report, with a series of deep dives into what's going on in the insurgency in northern Mozambique. We'll start today with Sam Ratner for an overview of December and January so far in the conflict. Hi Sam, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. It's great, great to be on. Let's look back at the um, December situation summary from uh, the monthly report that's just come out. And I think um, we don't need to stick rigidly to just talking about December. We're getting towards the end of January now, so we might as well bring ourselves up to date. And some, but I think some of the trends we saw emerge in December have continued into this year and continue to be important. So two points of action have two confusingly similar names, Meluku and Mikula. The district of Meluku in Cabo Delgado was the incident focus in the latest weekly report that just came out at the end of last week. Um, but let's go back to December and Mekula, which is in Nyasa, was probably the most significant development from December, I think, Sam. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. Um, and I think it's a, a worthwhile place to start. I think uh, we had our, our first reports of insurgent action, uh, kind, of, uh, kind of concerted insurgent action in Nyasa province uh, in, in uh, Mekula district uh, in November. And I think there was some... Uh, uh, debate among analysts and also some you know, contention from the Mozambican government that this is a problem that would you know would go away and you know and that the, this kind of like significant westward expansion in the conflict wouldn't wouldn't become a long-term feature of of the insurgency and I think what we saw in December is that that's not the case I think what we saw in December uh, is you know continued attacks um, uh, and increased scale of attacks in in Bakula. And you know some uh, fairly significant displacement of civilians uh, in that area, and uh, you know I think that there are are a couple of big implications uh, of the the westward expansion uh, of the conflict into Makula. One is on the military side that uh, you know this is yet more a kind of geographic area that the limited resources available to the, the pro-government coalition. So the Mozambican military, the Mozambican police, uh, the Rwandan military intervention force and the, the Southern African development community uh, military intervention force. Uh, it expands the space that they need to be in, in order to, to counter the uh, insurgents. Um, and given the kind of limited manpower resources at their disposal, I think that's a, a, a challenge. And the other challenge is that uh, it, it expands the humanitarian crisis that has been brought on by this conflict and uh, expands it into an area where the infrastructure to respond uh, to conflict-driven displacement has not been built up over the last, uh, the last four years. And the, uh, we're seeing you know, challenges now from the government trying to, to respond uh, 
uh, you know, on, on the fly to to civilian displacement in uh, northeastern uh, Makula. Uh, and this is going to be, uh, I think, potentially a, a, a bigger problem going forward as we get further into the rainy season, into, into the lean season. Yeah, it's certainly um, gained a lot of headlines, the expansion into Nyasa, into another province. I mean, my initial reaction to that was, you know, these insurgents don't really care that that's another province. That's not probably not a big deal for them, but it's actually a long way from um, the real core areas of this insurgency, which has been, has been restricted to the coastal areas. And now it's traversed the whole of Cabo Delgado and, to, and into Nyasa. Yeah, it's it, it's a long way geographically, and it's also a long way politically. Um, you know, we we think uh, when we think about the origin of of the insurgency in Masimba de Praia, and you know, and and it's kind of high levels of recruitment from especially uh, you know coastal communities in Masimba de Praia district, in Macamia district, in Palma district. The you know their political grievances with uh, with the government are you know, functionally different in a lot of ways from political grievances of people who live further inland. Um, and we've seen, uh, if you go back and, and look at some of the, the excellent work uh, that's been done by the Rural um, Environment Observatory uh, to, to do profiles of insurgent leaders, they have done profiles both of leaders from the coast and from, from further inland, including some who have been confirmed to be involved in, in attacks at Nyasa. Uh, and their you know, people who are are come from further inland have you know, are are much more associated with you know economies of of mining of cross border trade, uh, you know, kind of an inland cross border trade, um, and uh, you know, in some cases of of human trafficking, uh, and much less involved in questions about uh, fishing, about displacement as a result of of natural gas exploration. Uh, and some of those other issues that that have kind of dominated discussion in in the coast. I think that the expansion into Nyasa, you know, there, there have been a long time uh, accounts of insurgent recruitment from Nyasa, but I think ex- the expanding of the conflict into Nyasa potentially indicates an expansion in the kind of range of political uh, grievances that the insurgency is able to bring to bear in its its uh, the kind of case it's building against the government. Right. And yeah, you mentioned the, the OMR, the, the, the Rural, rural uh, Environment uh, Observatory think tank. And uh, yes, I remember that also they, they wrote about some of the, some of the manifestations of, um, I suppose, radical Islam, which, which had happened all that far inland, hadn't they? I mean, maybe not into Nyasa, but further inland in, in Capital Gardas. So perhaps in that context, it's not so surprising, but it's clearly um, a lot more... Uh, fertile ground for research uh, throughout this year into what this what this uh, inland expansion of the, the, the insurgency means and, and and also how how is the government going to going to face up to it but at the same time some of the more traditional areas of the insurgency have come back into the spotlight um Macomir, where there were some uh, huge conflicts a couple of years ago has again become maybe the epicenter of the conflict in the last couple of months yeah, absolutely. So, uh, Maccabee District was was certainly the epicenter of, of the conflict in uh, in December, um, and that has has continued to an extent into January. And I think it's particularly notable uh, in in December because the the increase in insurgent activity and increase in in insurgent attacks in Maccabee coincided with 
the impending decision uh, that, that has since been taken. Um, but but uh, but at the time, uh, there was a, a decision coming from SADC about whether or not to extend uh, SAMIM, the, the SADC uh, intervention mission in Mozambique. Um, that decision was due uh, beginning January. It, it, it has been taken. There's there's uh, it appears that there's a, a six month extension in in that mission. Um, but it seemed very much as though the insurgency was uh, stepping up its operations in Makamiya in an attempt uh, to indicate to Sadek the costs of remaining. Makamiya is, is kind of the the main district, uh, along with with Nangade, uh, that Samim troops are are charged with maintaining security in. And so those attacks included uh, an ambush of South African special forces. Uh, outside of Chai in, in Makamiya, uh, in which the, the first uh, Semim uh, combat fatalities were suffered. Uh, combat fatality, I guess I should say, was, was suffered. Uh, and then there were also a series of attacks uh, that took place, not just north of Makamiya town, uh, where which is, has long been a, an area of, a contested area, uh, as insurgents have moved south from the Simba de Praia district, um, but also south of Makamiya town, along the road that connects Makamiya town to Pemba, which is the the kind of main um, uh, main artery for for both uh, you know goods and security uh, reaching Makamia, which is which is one of the the kind of outposts of government control uh, closest to what was once core uh, insurgent territory. I noticed the insurgents didn't try the same trick on the Rwandans to, to uh, dissuade them from extending their mission. Is that because they're, they're militarily less vulnerable, or politically less vulnerable, or both? I, I think both. I think I think what we've seen is you know the insurgency has has clearly adopted a, a divide and conquer strategy. We've we've seen almost no attempts since uh, insurgents were largely pushed out of of southern Masimba Praia district by the Rwandans. We've seen almost no attempts by the Mos- by the insurgents rather uh, to to try to give battle to to the Rwandans. They, there haven't been significant uh, attacks in Masimba Praia district. There hasn't been a push on Palma. Um, the the Rwandans seem content to create a secure corridor between the gas projects in Palma and Nueda, uh, and the insurgents at the moment seem content to let them have it. Conversely, Samim, which is both uh, you know a, a not as well resourced as the the Rwandan intervention, and also politically in a lot of ways a lot more more unstable. Um, has been a much more frequent target of, of insurgent attack uh, in in uh, Nagade to a to a certain extent, but as I said, in particular recently in, in Makamiya. Um, and you know, I, I I don't think it's it's a stretch to suggest that that the insurgents are attempting to persuade uh, Sadek uh, to uh, to abandon its intervention. Uh, and thereby significantly reduce the amount of kind of counterinsurgent forces that are available uh, to the to the pro-government coalition. Any idea or risk a prediction on where the insurgents are going to be focusing in the next few weeks? I mean, now that Samim have extended, maybe it doesn't make sense to keep going in, in Makomia, maybe expand, you know, keep the pressure up in Niasa province. I don't know. Yeah, I think I think Niasa is part of it, but I think also this this comes back to uh, uh, Maluku, which you were, were mentioning at the beginning. So this is um, uh, Maluku is is the the district uh, to the to south and and west of uh, Makamia, 
Um, and uh, the kind of eastern spit of it crosses that same road I was describing that goes between Pemba and, and Makamiya town. Uh, and in the, the insurgency's push in December uh, and towards the end of December into January to, to kind of threaten that, that route, uh, there were a series of attacks in along that route in um, Maluku district. Uh, and then since then, in January, we've seen actually further attacks in Maluku pushing westward uh, kind of towards the Maluku district capital. Um, and this poses a couple of real challenges for the, the counterinsurgent uh, coalition. One is a, a political challenge because Maluku, uh, which has not historically been kind of a core uh, district of the conflict, um, is you know, it's not an area where there's been a lot of, of forces distributed. It's not an area uh, that is clearly in the area of responsibility of, of any of the, the intervening uh, uh, powers. And it is a, a it, it's a conundrum to one trying to deal with insurgent attacks in Maluka to decide you know, from where you're going to take troops to, to put them in Maluka. Um, and it also is uh, just kind of a tactical problem. Maluku is is pretty pretty rough country. Uh, the road infrastructure is not very not very good. It's going to become much worse as we've we've entered the rainy season. It's going to be very difficult for the kind of the road bound militaries that make up the the counterinsurgent force to move around in Maluku. Um, they'll be much easier for the insurgents who move uh, largely on foot to do so. And and yeah, it's going to going to pose a real a real challenge. Um, and at the same time, because Maluku has been comparatively uh, protected from the conflict thus far, there are still resources there for the insurgency to loot uh, to help get them through the lean season, which which dating back all the way to this time last year uh, has been a real a real challenge for the insurgency. Okay, so we keep our eyes on Maluku probably, um, <clears throat> but who knows where it's going to flare up next. Um, just to touch on, uh, so the other piece you wrote for the monthly, which um, tends to be a series of articles with a deep dive into different issues, um, you took on the question of recording the the level of devastation and uh, the number of conflict incidents. That's obviously Aklad's bread and butter is uh, recording conflict incidents. But something that uh, doesn't make it into Aklad's database necessarily is something which has been characteristic of this conflict, which is the burning of houses and indeed entire villages. But one district in Cabo Delgado, at least, has been keeping a record. The numbers it's uh, returned on that are quite shocking. Yes, so uh, we obtained a copy of a a presentation put together by the government of Nagade District, which is the district in Cabo Delgado, uh, to the the west of Palma District in uh, in the north. that tracks the damage to to infrastructure in 22 villages in the district between January and August of 2021. Um, and it's an interesting report for a range of reasons, uh, but I think the you know the one that that you kind of rightly highlighted in your question uh, is this the the extent of uh, uh, housing and kind of in general uh, built infrastructure destruction. That, that we're seeing in the conflict. Um, so, uh, so for example, I mean, the, this report that again, covers 22 villages, so not every village in Ngade, in, and indeed has left out some of the real uh, hotspots, some of the areas where, where we at ACLED have recorded a number of attacks um, in that period, 
but just in those in those twenty two villages, they uh, in that time frame, they record five thousand two hundred and sixty three houses destroyed, including uh, two thousand and forty two in uh, Ngagolo, uh, which is uh, a a village uh, on what kind of the main north south road in Ngadi district. That's a lot of houses. Two thousand houses in one village. It is, yeah. It is. Uh, uh, it, it it sent me to the satellite photos to 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 <laughs> make sure that it was possible. But I mean, what's the average ha- household size? Six, seven people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. We're certainly certainly north of yeah four four or five. I mean, yeah. That's a it's a, a huge level of of displacement that we're talking about. Um, and in addition to the house burnings, we're also talking about shops destroyed. This uh, we've got. Uh, the, you know, this survey reported 151 uh, shops burned down, uh, 121 uh, motor vehicles destroyed, another 411 bicycles, as well as a, a fair amount of, of uh, agricultural equipment. So uh, 115 uh, like pesticide spraying machines and and 11 different milling operations. So the you know the level of 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 destruction goes well beyond what we see. What, what we really track at, at Cabo Legado is uh, fatalities and other forms of, of kind of direct interpersonal violence. Um, and, you know, obviously that's, that's very important to track and, and uh, you know, we do our best at it, but I think that, you know, it's important to keep in mind the, the level of, you know, immiseration that this this conflict has brought on for for civilians in in Cabo Delgado, and you know, even as we get to a place where it seems as though there are going to be displaced civilians, you know, returning to their homes uh, in greater numbers in the coming months, uh, I think that that the amount of assistance people are going to need, uh, you know, when they return and discover that they they you know don't have a home to return to. Uh, I think it's going to be substantial and and uh, it's going to be part of the the cost of of rebuilding as we go forward. Yeah, I'm reading about Macamira now, I you know makes you wonder are there people being displaced for the second time who who've been displaced who've gone home, just moving on again. Yeah, I mean, almost certainly, almost certainly that's happening. Um, yeah, there was back in 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 2020 there was uh, a real excuse me in 2021 rather there was a real effort by the Mozambican government to encourage civilians to return to Macamia town uh, who had, had been displaced at Macamia town had, had been uh, occupied by insurgents for a period uh, there was a battle there and and when uh, government forces retook the town they they made a real effort to to get people uh, to return from uh, various resettlement areas uh, back to to Macamia. and uh, yeah, almost certainly uh, we're seeing. I mean, we've, we've already seen some of those people be direct victims of insurgent attack, um, and almost certainly, you know, uh, substantial numbers of those people have been been kind of re-displaced. Yeah, which is is uh, you know a, a threat in lots of areas where where people you know are being or will be encouraged to return. Um, and is another another chapter in the the you know quite dispirited humanitarian history of this conflict. Yes, indeed. Thanks again, Sam Ratner, and uh, we'll be back tomorrow with another Zisma podcast. Thank you, Tom.
Finally today, we'll turn to an article published by Zitamar News on our website last Friday afternoon about a new policy coming out of the European Union which threatens to tax one of Mozambique's biggest exports uh, based on its carbon intensity. We've spoken to the reporter who wrote this story for Zitamar, Pamela Machado, and she's going to talk us through how it works. This new policy is called CBAN, which stands for Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism. The policy was designed to avoid carbon leakage in the EU imports. So what this means is that the EU will apply the same carbon-related fees of their domestic products now to their imports. The plan is to kick off the transitional phase of CBAN next year. During this initial phase, business will only have to report the emissions associated with their imports. The full system is expected to come in 2026, and this time the fees will be applied. Okay, so the levy only starts being charged in 2026. And why will Mozambique be so affected? So the impact for Mozambique is related to, the to its aluminium exports to the EU. Aluminium from Mozambique comes from Mozao, a smelting facility just outside of Maputo. Producing aluminium is a very carbon-intensive process with over a billion tons of emissions per year. But decarbonizing the sector, on the other hand, is going to be expensive. Mozambique is the only least developed country in the top 15 most affected countries by CBAN. Right, presumably because the exports from this one plant are such a significant part of Mozambique's total exports of any commodity. We then asked as experts about the possibility of exemptions, exemptions to be granted for Mozambique and other least developed countries, but that seems unlikely at the moment. We also asked if the EU could use CBAN revenue to help decarbonization efforts in these least de developed countries, but that doesn't seem likely either. CBAN revenues at the moment are said to be incorporated in the EU budget. Martin Jackson, an aluminium analyst at CRU, told us that it's likely that other countries and other markets beyond the EU will implement similar mechanisms to regulate carbon emissions. So really the best strategy forward is to decarbonize the aluminium sector. Right, and as I understand it, Moselle's aluminium could become even more intensive in the years to come if it doesn't manage to extend its contract to buy power generated at the Cahorabasa hydro plant. Currently, Mosau is being supplied by Hydropower, but this contract is, expire, is set to expire in 2026, the same year that CBAN will come into effect. We have not heard back from Mosau whether they will manage to extend their agreement or which will be the source after 2026. So at the moment, we don't currently have any information whether the source will continue to be Hydropower, whether it will be another type of renewable energy or even gas. The problem with that is that given how energy intensive aluminium smelting is, energy supply to Mosau could come at a cost of supplying energy to the population. Currently, only 30% of Mozambicans have access to electricity. The government plans to have universal access by 2030. So reconciling the needs to decarbonize aluminium production and at the same time provide energy to all of Mozambique in less than a decade will be a big challenge. Thank you for listening to the Zetamar podcast, a new podcast which for now is distributed through our Substack newsletter on our Telegram live channel, and in the coming days will be available on all the normal podcast channels, Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, even Apple Podcasts in a few days' time. For now, we'll be back tomorrow with another interview from the Cabaligado team and more analysis of behind the headlines in Mozambique. 
Thanks again for listening. Thank you.